Well, Father, we are so thankful for your saving grace to us, that you have called us from eternity past to be a people for your own possession, that you have given us your word to sanctify and transform us. And I pray that as we read about your character and consider just your merciful discipline today, that we will be encouraged by what we see. We pray for clarity. Lord, where I'm not clear, Holy Spirit, will you clarify? We pray for conviction, not from me, but from you. And we pray for encouragement to those who who need it as well. May you minister to us greatly during this time. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm going to start off with a confession. Might be hard to believe, but as a child, I used to disobey. (laughs) Not as much as my little brother, but for some reason I got caught more. Whenever I got caught, my father would discipline me, and yes, we used spankings back then, and he would always preface every spanking session with, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I never believed him. I still don't believe him. I've never said that to my own children because I knew it wasn't true. The point of discipline is that it hurts them more than it hurts me, right? I think my dad kind of wrote that, must have read that in a book somewhere where he thought that that's what you should tell them. And and you get the spirit behind it where a good father is reluctant to cause pain and inflict pain on their child. I mean, nobody thinks, you know, it'd be nice to spank some children They won't let me do it in the nursery anymore, so maybe I ought to have my own children so I could spank them. Part of the joys of fatherhood, right? I I think we all know that any pain that we cause our children is something that we do it reluctantly, but why do you do it? Because you don't want to raise narcissistic brats, right? There's a greater purpose behind it. God disciplines his children. And when he disciplines, it's not pleasant, it's not fun, it's very difficult And how do you endure it? Well, part of it is you remember who is administering discipline in his character. Now, in the passage for today, Luke 13, 34 and following, we see the Son of God reflecting the heart of God in the midst of what will be discipline for the people of Israel. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus laments over the future discipline of Jerusalem and the Jews, who are still beloved by God. Now, as Christians, you are a child of God in a salvific sense. In Romans 8.15, we are told, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
You are a son and daughter of the king. You are saved. You are individually part of the people of God. God adopts you as a son or daughter. But there is another people of God. One that is not necessarily defined individually, but nationally. It is the nation of Israel. We see their special adoption ceremony in Genesis 12, 1 through 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So God takes Abram and he makes three promises. Number one, I am going to give you a promised land, right? That's why they call Israel the promised land. It's promised to who? The descendants of Abram. Two, God will make Abram's descendants into a great nation. And three, it will be through this great nation that all the earth will be blessed. Now, what's interesting about this promise is that Abram doesn't do anything to merit it. It's not like he says, do this and this will happen to you. God makes what's called a unilateral promise. I will make you a great nation. Now, as you know, even though they are the chosen people of God, they don't act like God, right? In fact, in Romans 11, Paul identifies them as enemies of the gospel. Romans eleven twenty eight through 29, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But in regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So yes, every Jew who dies in an unrepentant state is assigned to the lake of fire like any other unbeliever. Being a Jew is not sufficient to save you. But there still is this national promise given to them that is not contingent on their behavior or their performance, but on a promise made to their fathers. And this explains why the Jewish people still exist, even though they have been the most persecuted and hated people on the planet for millennia. Many societies have tried to stamp them out and to exterminate them, and yet they still remain. And a Jew is defined by many things, but namely they are defined by a rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And yet they are still here. They are still around, and, and God still has a plan for them, and that is to discipline them into final, full repentance. God disciplines those who he loves. He's disciplining the nation of Israel. And God also disciplines his own children as well. Now, when we talk about discipline, there's many ways to understand it. Sometimes people are disciplined for being a moron, right? You get what you deserve. You got yourself in this mess, you get yourself out of your mess. Allowing people to experience the full consequence of their, of their sin, right, is 
an act of teaching them. Sometimes you let them touch the hot item on the stove. Okay, I'm, that is not the official position of Flint Hills Bible Church for legal purposes, just letting you know. But you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you allow people, if you're going to make a dumb decision, you let them walk into it. Sometimes there is discipline where the Lord is, is pruning you to make you more fruitful, right? When you look at the trials and tribulations in life, it's never pleasant. Suffering is called suffering for a reason. Nobody enjoys suffering. And a lot of times when you are suffering and you're asking why God questions, why you're letting this happen, there can be periods of despondent, uh, despondency, uh, discouragement, where you kind of wonder, has God set his face against me? Is it over for me? Has he forgotten about me? Just read the Psalms. Those are honest questions. So in the midst of this discipline, you can be tempted to think that God is not for you, but that he is against you, right? All discipline for a moment seems painful. And so how do you deal with discipline? How do you get the fullness of discipline? How do you get what discipline is really intended to do, a deeper faith and trust in God, as you remember who it is who is dealing out the discipline? Now, in this passage, we see a discipline of, of Israel, but I think there are implications for us when we experience discipline as well. You need to remember who is dealing out the discipline. You see, kind of my four-point outline here, that divine discipline is just because God is just. Divine discipline grieves God because God is merciful. Divine discipline is a necessary consequence. It moves God's sovereign plan along, and God's divine discipline ends with hope. Ultimately, when he disciplines his children, just like when he disciplines Israel, there will be a positive outcome in the future. So if you've gone through discipline, if you're experiencing discipline, or if you will experience discipline, did I I cover everybody? Right, this message is for you, okay? So first point, divine discipline is just. Now, to bring you up to speed in this passage, Jesus was just asked the question, Jesus, will those who are saved be few? And remember how Jesus answers? He doesn't give a yes or a no. He says, you need to make sure that you're saved and that you're one of the few. And then he says something rather stunning. He says, the time is short, the door is going to be closed, and there's going to be people standing outside the door wanting to get in. And there's going to be basically Jews who are going to notice that people from the north, south, east, and west, all these Gentiles are dining at the table with the patriarchs and the prophets while the Jews are shut out. And so this kind of brings forth the question, is, is there a future for the Jews? How, how does God regard this? And, and And this part in Luke kind of answers that general question. But it does so by explaining the movements of Jesus first. By placing him in Jerusalem, which will be the site of the greatest crime in human history. And it will be Jerusalem that will one day be punished for what they did to Jesus. They will be disciplined. So look at verse 31 with all this in mind. At that very hour... Some Pharisees came and said to him, Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, we don't know if the Pharisees were friends or foe. Maybe this was a group of friendly Pharisees who were trying to give Jesus a heads up about what Herod wants to do to him. 
Well, given that Pharisees are overwhelmingly used in the negative sense, that's probably not the case. They probably wanted to find some way to push Jesus out of the region so that he would not trouble them anymore. Now, if you know a little bit about Israel at that time, Herod governed the northern part where there's the Sea of Galilee, and Pilate governed the southern part where you would have the city of Jerusalem. And so when Jesus is in this northern part, Herod begins to become very irritated at this faith healer who seems to be rising up and considered a king. And Herod was a man of very, very low character. Remember John the Baptist? He confronts Herod for marrying his brother's wife. Right? That is verboten. You, you don't do that if you claim to be a Jew. You don't do that if you're not a Jew, right? And so John the Baptist confronts him, and being the good totalitarian leader that he is, he decides to arrest John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is languishing in prison, and, and Herod throws a big dinner party, and for entertainment, he has his stepdaughter perform a lusty dance, right? That's the character of Herod. And Herod just loves the gyrations of his stepdaughter and says, I tell you what, I'm going to give you whatever you ask up to half the kingdom. And so she, the stepdaughter, confronts her mother, who is Herod's wife, and they come back and they ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And, John, and Herod says, well, a deal's a deal, and executes the greatest man who ever lived in a shameful, disgusting way. And so this man is saying, well, I want to go ahead and kill Jesus now. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 32, he said to them, go and tell that fox. Okay, that's not a compliment, by the way. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. So with prophetic conviction, he calls out Herod for being the scoundrel that he is. He points to all the works that he's doing, and he tells them, I will leave when I'm ready to leave. No corrupt king is going to short-circuit my ministry. But still, he does have plans to leave Herod's territory, as he explains in verse 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. God is guiding him towards Jerusalem. And and Jerusalem was a religious nerve center of that society. You think about Roman Catholicism, it's named after the city of Rome, right? And Rome is significant because it hosts the Vatican. That is the nerve center of Roman Catholicism. So when we talk about Rome, you talk about basically the entire institution and and the entire apparatus of Roman Catholicism. In the same way, when Jesus talks about Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that is the host city of the temple. It is where all the pilgrims would gather for the various feasts. That was the place where David reigned. Jerusalem is the nerve center of Judaism. And he must go there Because it will be in this sacred city where he will be murdered. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away 
from Jerusalem. Now, there are some exceptions, but the larger point is, in this nerve center where you have the ruling elites, they reject God's messengers. Sure, some of them would build some tomb for some prophets. They would imagine that they would have stood on the side of righteousness, but consistently, time after time, when God sends messengers, they reject him. And here is Jesus, right? The word of God tabernacled among men, right? He is kind of the living embodiment of what the temple is supposed to be. When he goes to the city of the actual temple, they murder him. They claim to love prophetic preaching, but when the true prophet is in their midst, they murder him. They claim to be longing for the true Messiah sent by God, but when the true Messiah is in their midst, they murder him. And eventually, God will discipline them with the destruction of what they hold most precious and dear, and that is the city of Jerusalem, specifically the temple. You see, the justice of God to make sure that the punishment fits the crime does not want God to die outside of Jerusalem, does not want Jesus to die outside of Jerusalem, but inside of Jerusalem. So it's very, very clear that when the future punishment comes, it was just. Divine discipline is always just. You can say that's not fair. It's always fair. It's always fair. In fact, we are, we are getting better than what we deserve right now. Agreed? It's always fair. Divine discipline is always justice. It's ministered by a just God. Now, just because it's fair doesn't mean that God is callous towards it. We see in the second point that divine discipline grieves God. Look at verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus repeats a lament, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It echoes David's lament over his treacherous, treasonous, evil son, Absalom, when he says in 2 Samuel 18, 33, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. There is a lament Jesus grieves over the people who will not only reject him, but murder him. He looks at the future. He sees their future destruction. And then he says, how often, verse 34, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The chicken is out in the barnyard and, and sees a red-tailed hawk above. Or perhaps hears some claps of thunder and sees some lightning and with some clucks and clicks gathers all the little chicks and kind of surrounds her brood with her wings to escort them to safety. That is what Jesus wants. I, I want to just bring you under my protection. I don't want this fate to happen to you. I'd rather that you would repent. But why don't they? Why don't they? You are not willing. The reason why they are denied protection is not because it's not offered. 
It's because they're not willing to take it. And this causes a degree of, of grief and lament in the heart of Jesus and reflects the heart of God. In the Old Testament, Israel was to be punished. And how does God express his, his sentiment? Ezekiel 18.32 For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Ezekiel 33.11 Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn from but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Come back. It doesn't have to be this way. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Imagine a world where you have a God who did not grieve over the destruction of the evil ones. He's up there in heaven thinking, you know, I just made this wonderful lake of fire. I can't wait to use it. Oh, can't wait to throw him in there and him in there and him in there. If he had some joy and delight in punishing the damned, what would that say about him? But God does not desire anyone to perish. That is not his heart. It creates grief and lament. Now, if you're a thoughtful Christian, there's an obvious question, right? If God doesn't want them to perish, and God's in charge, why doesn't he just make sure that none of them do? Well, in the same way, I, I never delighted in administering discipline to my children, right? So why did it? Because a greater desire supplanted the desire to be Mr. Popular with my kids. We'll answer more of this later on. Yes, God does not desire that the wicked should perish, but that desire is supplanted by a greater desire to do those activities which bring him the greatest glory. So hold that thought. We're going to return to it. But all this to say, God is compassionate and discipline grieves God. Thirdly, divine discipline is a necessary consequence. God must discipline those who rebel. There must be some form of punishment. He says in verse 35, behold, your house is forsaken. He's making this prophetic declaration, and this will be fulfilled some four decades later. In fact, later on in Luke 19, 41 through 44, Jesus has a similar uh, lament over Jerusalem when he says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it and said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now in AD 66... The Jews were fed up with the Roman occupiers, and they started a revolt. The Romans responded by plundering the temple. The Jews responded by an even greater revolt where they uh, expelled the Roman leadership, including uh, Herod II. Well, the Romans executed 6,000 Jews. The Jews then mobilized in the Battle of Beth Haran. They managed to drive out the Romans completely, killing 6,000 soldiers. That was AD 66. Four years later, General Titus mounted a huge Roman offensive against Jerusalem. They overcame the city walls, they not only plundered the temple, They tore it down brick by brick. No more temple anymore. And in the process, they killed anywhere from hundreds of thousands to a million Jews. It was a complete annihilation. The temple is gone. Jerusalem is destroyed. You know what's really fascinating about this? Is why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? What was their driving impulse? In fact, turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. And this is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and became a real problem for the Jews. And they're trying to figure out what do we do with Jesus? So, starting in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We certainly don't want that, do we? But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. And so they believed if we kill Jesus, we'll save our city and we'll save our temple. The very thing that they tried to protect, they lost. When they murdered Jesus, behold, your house is forsaken. They almost had this idolatrous lust to protect their temple and protect their city. And so Jesus, the Lord, takes it away. I mean, if my boys are fighting over the video game console, parental responsibility is, give me the console, right? Give me the console. You're not playing Xbox anymore. I'm going to take it away. If you're willing to murder a righteous man, To keep the temple, I'm going to take it away. I'm going to take it away. And the Lord did. Now, what would have happened if, let's say, they went ahead and murdered Jesus and and 
God decided to be the quote-unquote bigger God and show grace. You know what? I'm not going to do any repercussions. I'm going to give you a good king to lead you. Um, I'm going to go ahead and prosper you. You're going to be blessed beyond measure because of my great love for you, even though you murdered my son. They would conclude, you know what? Killing Jesus was the best thing we ever did because things really got better since we did that. You know, killing Jesus must have been what God wanted all along because otherwise, why why would he bless us like he did if that wasn't the case? It would allow them to smugly remain in their self-righteous state. There had to be a consequence. God had to show that there is a cause and effect relationship between their sin and future punishment. But it won't remain that way forever because we see that divine discipline ends with hope. Now Jesus departs And with him is the blessing of God. But that doesn't mean that it's permanent and final. Look at verse 35. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you guys might remember that. It's a quotation from Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. We sing this on Palm Sunday. That is how Jesus was greeted when he entered Jerusalem on that fateful week. Now, just to clarify, this passage is not fulfilled when he does the triumphal entry. There are a number of reasons for that. Number one, when this teaching is repeated in Matthew, when he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Matthew, that happens after the triumphal entry. Secondly, When you look closely at Luke, in Luke, who says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? It's his disciples. Thirdly, crucifying somebody is an odd way of showing blessing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The idea of coming in the name of the Lord is when you come in the name of someone, you are sent on their behalf. You speak on their behalf. Like stop in the name of the law. You speak on behalf of the law and the lawgivers. Jesus is the one who is to come in the name of the Lord, and they will reject him. They will crucify him, but there will be a time when they, and he's talking through the generations, will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah 12.10, a prophetic passage where the prophet looks looks at the future, and he says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, crucified people are pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. Right now, Judaism is defined by what? It's defined by a rejection of Christ. It's not by keeping the law, because not all of them do. Vaguely, by uh, your bloodline, the same standards to be a citizen of Israel, you have to meet the same standard that the Nazis implemented to bring people into a concentration camp. But overwhelmingly, to be a Jew is, I'm not a Christian. 
But there will come a future time where they'll look on him who they have pierced. They will weep and they will mourn. And Paul brings this up in Romans 11. In fact, turn to Romans 11. We're going to camp out here for a little bit. Romans eleven twenty five. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Notice the distinction between Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles. And in the way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. A deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob's. From Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Someday in the future, the Jews who are alive at that time will look upon him who they have pierced, and all Israel will be saved at that point. Now, prior to that, a, a Jew who does pass away, if they reject Christ, they meet the fate of all those who have rejected Christ. But there is a future for them. And this shows that divine discipline accomplishes a divine purpose. There is a reason why God does what he does. When God disciplines a believer in Hebrews 12, 11, the author of Hebrews says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The goal of discipline is not to break the will. The goal of discipline is not to assume mastery over The goal of discipline is to produce fruit and change and transformation. And so when you look at the purposes of God's discipline of Israel, Paul breaks down why God does what he does in Romans chapter 11. He answers the question in Romans chapter 11, what about the Jews, right? They're enemies. They've been opposing us. What about the Jews? Is there some future for them? Is God done with the Jews? And Paul argues initially in Romans chapter 11 that there is still a remnant. There is a remnant of believing Jews. But what about those who have hardened their heart? Well, Paul explains what their purpose is. Verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So clearly he's talking about rebellious Jews. So I ask, verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles as so as to make Israel jealous. So again, people from the north, south, east, and west will be dining at the table with the patriarchs. And what is that meant to do? Is to lead them to jealousy. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, get this, how much more will their full inclusion be. Do you see what he's prophesying here? There is a remnant of Jews right now, but there will come a time where there will be a full inclusion. All Israel will be saved. God has a greater purpose for them. God disciplines to accomplish something greater. He doesn't like discipline Just like you may not like disciplining your own children, but you do it because you have a greater purpose in mind. There's a greater cause. And this kind of brings us back to that original question. 
why couldn't God just save all the Jews and just everyone, right? Why, why does he have to even punish to begin with? Couldn't he make a world where there is no punishment, where there is no discipline, where God does good all the time to good people? Well, you have to bear in mind the chief end and purpose of God is to not glorify us, but to glorify him is to reveal the greatness and goodness of who he is to the universe. And he has a reason for ordering the world the way that he ordered, ordered it, including allowing evil to exist. Paul, in a similar discussion where he talks about the fallen nature of the Jews who he is burdened for and who he will gladly exchange his soul for theirs, answers the question about is it fair that God elects some but not others? That God gives grace to some but not others? He says in Romans 9, 21 to 23, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God desired to show his wrath and to make his make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory. So God has prepared vessels of wrath. Well, he, he endures, not prepares, he endures vessels of wrath. There is a difference. He allows villains to exist. He allowed Pharaoh to exist for a number of reasons. Now, March 9th, I proposed to Becky, so this is about the time of year, I think maybe 22 years ago, when I bought an engagement ring. And diamond shopping is, is pretty difficult, to be honest. And I, I was unprepared for what to look for or what to do. And it was interesting when I would go to the jeweler and they'd show me a diamond, they never put it on a white sheet of paper. They'd never just show it to you in the palm of their hand. You know what they'd put it on? A black pelt. And they'd shine the light on it. And you saw all the luster and glory of the diamond, right? One of the reasons why God allows evil to exist is evil highlights the goodness of God by way of contrast, right? And you look at the love of God. How, how does God's love express itself? It is most fully expressed in his ability to love the unlovable. If you only love the lovely, what does that say about your love? But by allowing evil to exist, God can love the unlovable. Show mercy on those who don't deserve it. Give grace to those who don't deserve it, right? There is a, a splendor to the fullness of his character that we would not otherwise see. Seeing his justice in action, seeing his power to overcome evil, the reason why evil exists is it allows God to fully show who he is. And God fully showing who he is and creating a world that gives him the most glory and the glorification of God is the greatest cause there is. That's why God allows it. 
Now, just because he allows it doesn't mean that he is some computer program who just sees evil as a necessary evil and delights in punishing. Okay, God is sovereign over evil, but God is still compassionate in the midst of evil. God disciplines his children compassionately. Now, in popular religion, you have this notion of karma, right? Karma is a way of, of believing that everybody gets what they deserve. Now, there is a true story of a young man in Ohio who loved stealing stop signs. He had a big stop sign collection in his room. Well, one day, or one night, he drove through an intersection that was missing a stop sign because it was hanging in his room. And he got T-boned and died. Karma alert, right? But that's not the way God works. He's not an automaton. He doesn't have this automatic response. He justly, judiciously dispenses justice, but he also gives mercy and grace. God is not a soulless judge. He is not an apathetic bureaucrat. He's a loving father who disciplines those whom he loves. Now, there are times where you sense the discipline of the Lord. You may be going through a very difficult time. It might have been because of your own stupidity. Right? I, I've suffered because of my own stupidity. It might be because God has decided to make you more fruitful and he's pruning you and he's allowing you to suffer. There might be times of loss. There are times when you most acutely feel the effects of the fall. And it can be tempting to think that one, you know, God is, God is not behind all this, right? But that would be terrifying if the forces of evil can run unchecked over our lives. Would you really want that? But discipline from our Father reminds us that God is actually using this to accomplish a greater work in you, to, to deepen your faith, so that when you come out on the other side, and get this, it may not be in this life, by the way. It may be in heaven, but when you come through on the other side, you'll have a, a deeper trust in God and more glorious view of our Father. See, when God disciplines Israel, on the other side, there is something even more wonderful, the redemption of a nation that will vindicate the character of our God. For the Christian, none of the suffering that you endure is because God is angry with you, by the way. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus was condemned for you. So you get that out of your mind. Your suffering is not because God is angry with you. Rather, it's because he's concerned about you. And like you would punish your son or daughter because they're doing bad things, sticking random objects in the electrical outlet, right? You might smack their hand to say, don't do that again because greater pain might be coming. 
God is disciplining you, preventing you from greater pain, focusing, nurturing you, protecting you. He doesn't delight in it, though, but he's using it. So, friend, if you are suffering from discipline, you need to remember, as you deal with the discipline, you need to remember and reflect on the character of the one who is disciplining you. This is for your good, and in the midst of all of this, he still loves you, He still has a plan for you, and this will work out for your good. Let's pray. Father, we come before you um, knowing that you are a loving Father and knowing that there are times when you must discipline us, that there are times where the pain that we feel um, comes from you, albeit with much grief, because you'd rather have us obey the first time. Or it comes from you because you want to do a deeper work in us. So, Father, we, we trust you with our pain. We trust you with your hand of discipline. We trust you to, to use it for good. And we pray that you will strengthen our faith in the midst of this. We thank you for the example of Jesus and just how even with a nation that rejected him, he still laments over them. That you are a God who does not delight in evil. That you are a God who um, would rather have all repent, but you're also a God who um, has a greater purpose and plan for the universe, which is your glory. So Lord, help us to cling to those truths in Christ's name. Amen.